break them. Hello comrades and welcome to season 2 episode 10 of Spectre. I'm delighted today to be joined by Cole McHale. Cole, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me, delighted to be here. Perfect, so just if we can start with a wee introduction for yourself Cole, you know uh, who you are, your affiliations and everything else in between. Hi of course, uh, so my name's Cole McHale, I'm from Glasgow. Um, I sit on, currently sit on Scottish Labour's Executive Committee, which, as you can imagine, is a barrel of laughs just now. Uh, um, I represent young members on there. Um, and I guess, uh, more generally, I'm an, I'm an activist and I came to politics and to trade unionism through uh, climate uh, activism, which is kind of a strange route, uh, especially given the kind of historic hostility between climate activists and trade unionists, which I'm sure we can you know, get into um, but no, that's me. Yeah, perfect call and uh, salute you in your continued uphill battle uh, within the Labour Party. <laughs> but yeah, just to kickstart us off then, obviously this episode covering uh, kind of environmentalism, especially in a broad sense, I thought we'd start off with the Rosebank. It's been one of the most recent and by far major developments, certainly here in Scotland. Uh, you know, I think it's almost in a way had a lot of undercoverage in the media, but that's no surprise given, you know, the, the state backing of it, the private enterprises involved uh, in partnership with this Norwegian company uh, that have taken aboard the, the production of the oil uh, just off of Shetland. But just to see if you can give us a wee rundown of the, the Rosebank and, uh, you know, what this will effectively mean for workers in Scotland. Aye, of course. Um, so Rosebank is kind of the latest in a long string of oil and gas projects that the current UK government are kind of attempting to rush through whilst they still can. So before the climate emergency gets so obviously bad to the general public, not that it isn't already, but they still think that they can they can push these projects through. So in the last couple of years, we've had Campbell, the oil field, Jack Daw, which was a gas field, and now Rosebank. Rosebank is the largest of the three. In fact, it's the largest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. It's nearly three times the size of Campbell. Um, and during its lifespan, the UK government and I suppose Equinor, uh, the Norwegian state oil company who have the largest share in the project, hope to extract over 500 million barrels of oil Um and, you know, given the severity of the climate crisis already, it's it's pretty clear how detrimental that's going to be um, for the people of Scotland and, of course, the people people of the world. Um, if approved, as I say, it will be developed by Equinor, state-owned Norwegian company. Meanwhile, the Scottish government has, uh, has rolled back on its own commitments to a national energy company. Um, the UK government would never even consider nationalising the sector. Labour's current policy proposes only setting up GB Energy, which is going to be a, a kind of attempt at, at nationalisation. So 40% of the stake is owned by um, the Norwegian government in Rosebank. 40% is owned by a Canadian oil giant. Um, and another 20% is owned by an Israeli oil company. So, you know, the pattern is clear. Um, that it's uh, even even if we the, the context was not so severe in the in with regards to climate crisis, every partner in this um, in this specific project um, is a company which is you know off off the shores of Scotland, um, and the contracts which will be awarded for Rosebank um, in Scotland are you know short term and overly precarious um, and the, the jobs that the Equinor promised the, the field will bring are are of that nature. So, you know, it, it's it's a step back with regards to climate change, a step back with regards um workers' rights, uh, you know, pours pours petrol on a on a burning planet. Um I think that the, the argument that some would make in favour of Rosebank would be around energy security. Um, in, in light of the recent energy crisis. But if you look at the fact that the UK government, because of the windfall uh, tax loophole, which says that if a, um, 
oil and gas company invests in the North Sea, then they will get a tax rebate. The UK government are going to end up subsidising those banks to the effect of five hundred million pounds, if not if not more. And um, you know, that's five hundred million pounds that could be used to bring down our energy bills. But instead, it's going into the pockets of, of fossil fuel giants. So it's a huge own goal at a time when you know we should be investing in state-run worker, a state-run worker-led just transition. Yeah, spot on call, and I think you, you touched on it quite well there in, in regards to you know not just looking at this from an environmentalist point of view, but as well as you know that kind of trade union or a workers' point of view, where these short-term deals really making the very delicate and very intricate job and especially in a a, a kind of skill tree that these workers have it's not something that's easily transferable uh, outside of this environment and you know this is something that kind of the environmental movement and as you said the trade union movement certainly clash heads on and you know i think we'll come on to talk about that later in, in regards to a just just transition and what that means but no i thought i was uh, thought i was really well covered Cole. thank you for that uh and yeah, you also touched kind of on the, the Scottish government's failings. Uh, I'm sure we could probably dedicate numerous episodes to that. We'd probably run out of time <laughs> trying to do it in this one. Uh, but in a broader sense, in climate targets, not even just on, on Rosebank, certainly with what we're now seeing uh, in Glasgow uh, and Edinburgh with the LAZ, now we're seeing uh, some backtracking to that with obviously some... Uh, movement towards the Scottish governments and the, the councils being taken to court from it but as hopeful as the, the mission to, to roll it out was aimed to be it still seemed very rushed uh, certainly at the dawn uh, of its conception to the uncertainty of uh, taxi drivers for yeah. uh, local supply chains within the, the city vans and everything that kind of left you know folk very unsure and not just that you know certainly with the Scottish governments or certainly now in a council level, well, how we're seeing council budgets being run, there's no real no real investment, certainly in local uh, measures yeah. of tackling climate change. I think that was probably most seen recently up in uh, the northeast of Scotland with the severe weather we've had. This lack of you know, investment in the infrastructure to prepare it uh, has led to the evacuation of so many people from their homes for severe weather. But just to see you know, what your thoughts are on the, the Scottish government's failings to meet its projected climate targets that it claimed it could meet didn't meet and doesn't look like it's going to meet anytime soon yeah i think it's an interesting one um but it's, it's a very good question it's worth saying on rosebank as well that scottish government didn't come out and oppose rosebank there were a lot of lot of people who you know suggested that by emission the scottish government were opposed to rosebank but um but they never came out and said it stephen flynn the leader at SNP leader at Westminster flirted with the idea of Rosebank being climate compatible. Now you just have to look at the numbers to to know that Rosebank's not climate compatible. Um, it's it's actually in keeping with the Scottish government's attitude to these things because Nicola Sturgeon never came out in opposition to Campbell. In fact, Nicola Sturgeon only came out in opposition to Rosebank after she'd left office in a sort of Glasgow Times column. So you know, a total abdication of of leadership. Uh, on behalf of the SNP, which is reflected in their failure to meet climate targets. You're right to highlight the the low emission zones, which, you know, in principle, I, I support. Um, I think we probably do, we do need to move that way. But if you look at what the Scottish government are doing and what's happening in cities like Glasgow, whilst they're trying to roll out a low emission zone, is the privately run night bus operator are threatening to cut the night bus. Um, there was no expansion of public transport to coincide with a low emission zone. And I think that, you know, these are quite obvious, um, obvious changes, which we would, which we, as you know, as someone who lives in the city, it's a common sense approach to if you're preventing certain cars from entering the city centre, it's the common sense approach to expand public transport to compensate for folk not being able to drive in. And that didn't happen. And I think that if it had, then a lot of the opposition that um that has is, is, that we've seen to the low emission zones w- would have been dealt with. Of course, not the taxi drivers who were, you know, treated appallingly and, and continue to be, I think, with the lack of clarity. Um around the issue. Um, the climate targets, uh, yeah, so the Scottish Government, I think, uh, had were legally um, obliged to lower their emissions by uh, 51 
percent by uh, the end of 2021 and and the emissions lowered by 49 um, percent or so so they narrowly missed the climate targets i think that um the 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 idea of climate targets is is an interesting one because it's it's quite abstract uh, it's good for politicians to be able to stand up and say you know you're failing on the climate emergency because you haven't met your climate targets but i, I often think that it's quite a, it's a difficult thing for us to for us to um understand when we're trying to like work out where they're failing. So it's like the fact that the Scottish government missed their climate targets by two percent, what does that actually tell us about how they're handling the, the just transition? Probably probably not as much as when you look at some of the uh, policy detail like the failure to roll out a national energy company. I think that these things are probably much more uh, indicative of, of where they're failing than the fact that they didn't actually meet the climate targets. Now, of course, the reason they didn't meet the climate targets is because they're failing to take the just transition seriously and institute the sort of radical policy um, that, that we would like to see in order to do it. But I think um, the idea of whilst measuring emissions reduction is, is is really important and we're having discussions about how um, successful or, or unsuccessful our progress towards a just transition is, that sometimes they're the, the, the wrong measure. That said, you know, um, to set a legally binding target and then um, miss it whilst simultaneously rolling back on policy after policy and failing to roll out scheme after scheme, which you've said you'll do on the just transition, is um, is bad, a problem. Yeah, you're you're spot on in terms of how kind of obtuse the the targets are. You know, pinpointing this this certain measure that has to be met, but by the continuous you know exploitation we're seeing of the natural resources just here in Scotland. By the time you've moved one month in advance to try and meet these targets, it's almost null and void. That's the situation has progressed much worse, and certainly the the gap in the the measure and the needs uh, to be taken uh, in an environmental strategy. Uh, have deteriorated and as well as that I thought it was a really good point you made on you know public transport it was absolutely laughable uh, the policies and the, the plans that were were being uh, perceived in Glasgow with uh, first bus wanting workers in hospitality to finish their, their shifts and come drive the buses about <laughs> it was utterly ridiculous yeah. Uh, and it just kind of shows you know the, the kind of lazy fair attitude we've had here in Scotland towards public transport uh, you know not just in rail but you know buses are certainly becoming a, a much more pressing issue now uh, with the campaigns like get Glasgow moving get Strathclyde moving so there's you know the real demand for real investment into public transport which will see uh, you know folk go away from using cars you know I, I, I drive a car I hate uh, having to drive in, into town or, or drive where I need to but I realise it's the only viable option to have because the, the train services are that bad. The buses are terrible. Uh, you know, this is not how you get folk away from, you know, using their car and reducing their CO2 emissions. So I thought it was an absolutely brilliant point to make as well. And uh, I'd like to say if the Scottish government are listening in, uh, but they've not been listening to MD and their demands for this. So I'm not going to hold my breath. But yeah, moving on from from following the Scottish government then I guess again looking at a, a broader sense COP26 uh, when it was hosted in Glasgow uh, a memorable memorable conference for some more than others uh, you know it was certainly a spectacle you know this uh, gathering of nations uh, you know the elite uh, it's laughable that you've got a climate conference uh, sponsored by oil companies and all these tycoons that kind of says enough as it is already but the entire operation on it was essentially a lecture to the masses. Uh, but, you know, these these governments failing uh, and continue to fail on purpose, giving us the lecture that it's us who need to pick ourselves up, uh, pull our socks up and, and tighten our bootstraps uh, while simultaneously dishing out policies and, and, and rolling out, like, we, like we're seeing now with, with Rosebank, uh, stuff that's almost completely out of our hands. So whilst COP26 and... The broad sense is essentially has been a failure. There has been some lessons to be learned from it. I think for us, uh, I'd say certainly following and you know the footsteps of our, our comrades in Latin America, uh, you know the work that they're doing, kind of highlighting the need for workers, especially youth workers, to be uh, uh, who live in the imperial core, to be more involved and impress their government to meet. Uh, climate targets or fostering new climate targets that meet meaningful impact because what we're seeing with our constant exploitation of the environment and natural resources itself and how 
we are producing stuff, you know, I think that's the fundamental to look at here. It's not just, you know, the fact we're doing it, it's how we're producing it. It's along the lines of capitalism uh, and the impact that that has on those in the global south. And now that we're seeing this rise, not just in the global south and in terms of weather, hurricanes, storms, you name it, but as well as uh, recent flooding uh, across Pakistan, it's making its way through Europe and most recently here uh, in Scotland as well, which again, we'll, we'll come on to talk about. But it was just to see... Uh, and get your views on on COP twenty six, and you know how you how you feel that's influenced or maybe not influenced anything uh, in the environmental strategies, both at a Scottish government level, and what has been influenced in terms of environmental activists on the ground. Yeah, um, I think it's, it's really 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 good points you make, um, especially about climate targets, right? Because Climate, the Scottish government can bring their emissions down by um, 49%, uh, but still be cutting local authority budgets, still be um, still be preventing local, or and by cutting local authority governments, still preventing, um, you know, local authorities from investing in uh, local energy, locally locally owned energy networks. And I think that's, that's the reason why these climate targets aren't, uh, representative because they have nothing to do with um with climate justice more broadly, uh, and I guess that brings us quite nicely on to COP. Um, so at COP twenty six there were more um fossil fuel lobbyists uh, in the blue zone, sort of behind the behind the curtain in 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 COP than there were representatives from any uh, specific nation. There were uh, sort of swathes of delegates from. Uh, the global south who couldn't get into Scotland, never get into the blue zone because of, uh, never mind get into the blue zone because of vaccine apartheid and immigration law, the hostile environment, and all of these things. So this is the context uh, in which this uh, kind of mammoth spectacle, as you say, is is happening. Um, meanwhile, in Glasgow, you've got uh, cleansing workers out on the picket line, and an SNP run Glasgow City Council deploying anti-trade union legislation against GMB's members in, in cleansing uh, as a means of trying to get them not to strike. You know, they were accused consistently of talking Scotland down by um, taking industrial action whilst the world's eyes were on Scotland and Glasgow during COP26. And, you know, that's indicative of the hypocrisy at the heart of heart of that conference. Everyone's cutting about, um, cutting about Glasgow, these international bigwig states, states people talking about justice and talking about fairness meanwhile you know we can't even pay our um pay our cleansing workers properly we can't even give them uh proper conditions proper workplaces so that that's that's the backing um or the back backstory of of cop um, which was a you know deeply alienating experience for folk who lived in Glasgow. There was no attempt at community integration. It was the circus rocked up, the steel fences went up, and then the circus moved out of town. Um, as as I think is the story with lots of these kind of international events, which do a lot of talking and and very little um, very little action. Uh, I think that what's important to note though is that what the results of cop for for the movement right i think i think that having that spectacle in glasgow did do good things for building links between climate activists and trade unionists for example right because what you have is um a lot of international climate activists lots of whom are from the global south in the city alongside scotland's trade union movement who are contributing to the conference and contribute contributing to the fringe and what that creates is an atmosphere where relationships are formed where there's more discussion about a just transition where both kind of trade unionists and climate activists are brought into the fold where trade unionists where climate activists are on picket lines talking to talking to workers and i think that for, for us in scotland that was the first time that um that that had happened you know uh, we were sort of living amidst amidst the pandemic uh, the last major round of climate action had been the 2019 climate strikes where there was not a, a concerted effort to involve trade unions whereas i think uh, in a lot of the work done around cop there was and um the relationships that were built in twi- in november 2021 have resulted in closer and better work uh, between the climate and trade union movement uh, ever since and that's something that is important but it doesn't negate the fact that the whole thing was a total charade 
um, in which all of the kind of major players attempted to green capitalism, this idea that we can have maximum extraction, providing that we put a green label on it, um, which, you know, happens internationally and it happens in Scotland. And that that, that was the major theme of COP26. There was a lot of talk about carbon markets, for example, you know, the idea that, you know, the, the, the biggest polluters in the country can or in the world can pay to offset their emissions, pay an asset management fund to plant trees for them. Most of those trees you will find never get planted. Um, it's the hypocrisies that are riddled throughout these international conferences once the Farad moves on are, are pretty incredible. So it was a mixed bag, COP26, I think. Yeah, mixed bag. I think that's, that's putting it lightly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you're spot on. I mean, it was the rolling out of the red carpet and the hypocrisy that the alienation, as you quite rightly said, the way so many folk in Glasgow felt, what the Scottish government and, and ScotRail decided to put on extra trains, later trains, uh, for about a week or something. And then as soon as COP was done, you know, that's it. That's your toys taken off you. And that was the last we saw of late running trains. And the travel pass as well, right? I mean, delegates got delegates got an integrated transport card um, that they could use on trains, buses, the subway. Um, and Glasgow City Council have been telling Scots for at least a decade that there is no way that transport could possibly be integrated in Glasgow. It's just too difficult. And yet Barack Obama turns up, has a pint in the Strathclyde Union, and he's he can go from bus, train and tram all using one card. Uh, it's, it's utterly maddening. Uh, and, you know, uh, maybe a sad uh, indication of our... Glasgow's lack of class consciousness where, where Barack Obama's free to drink in the Strathy Union <laughs> without any incident. But yeah, no, absolutely spot on on you know, COP26 and the trade union kind of solidarity that's kind of been built from then in terms of environmental work being more integrated with, with what we're doing. I certainly remember that on the day, uh, being with the YCL and supporting the GMB cleansing workers at the Paul Medee, uh, early doors in the morning. Uh, before heading out to the to the big march and you know I, I definitely agree from then there's been you know a more somewhat cautious I'd say not not overly uh, cautious you know insight and developments within certain trade unions probably most likely as GMB uh, and Unite obviously with them both representing very polluting sectors you know your, your oil and gas and we unite certainly representing many in the the arms manufacturing. You know that's that's a vast international network. Uh, I think from from what we're seeing from other unions though, that's been been very good, especially those that are more focused domestically, has been this strong push uh, towards uh, trying to you know foster the trade union movement and further awareness uh, of you know our need to uh, be mindful of of the environment and you know what we need to see is that being. Uh, done uh, in GMB within Unite and you know other unions in, as well and I think from that alone they really come from from the youth certainly you know there's the trade union movement as of you know the past 20, 20 odd years has, has suffered you know a bit, a bit of a plight uh, in terms of careerism uh, coming off the back of the you know many folk not being actually been able to influence themselves uh, within the Labour Party and we've now seen that somewhat uh, within the trade union movement, certainly, uh, or well, especially in regards to environmental strategy uh, or the lack thereof, uh, we we total discontent from it. But overall, certainly, I think the, the fostering of a, a, a much more progressive relationship with environmental groups uh, and at the trade union movement has been superb. Uh, and, you know, for, for as long as there's sunlight in the sky and we'll see how oil production goes, I think it's a flower. Uh, that will bloom but speaking uh, on weather and sunshine that we, we certainly really get here uh, coming here domestically again in Scotland focusing on I guess most recently the, the severe weather uh, we've been seeing and you know some some folk take these changes in uh, weather these storms quite light, quite lightly uh, but you know it's, it's ironic Scotland uh, a nation stereotypically uh, viewed as uh, a nation of just bad weather and we get on with it. Everything uh, as of recent due to the severe weather that we faced, everything's came to a standstill, more flooding, uh, trains haven't been able to run, buses absolutely cancelled and as we were talking earlier, you know, homes actually being uh, evacuated, you know, I, I think it was actually quite 
uh, scary scenes in the northeast of Scotland, uh, seeing these evacuations and just how ill-prepared uh, Scotland has been. And with the projections that we're seeing for if Scotland doesn't get its act together, if uh, Britain the rest of the world uh, can't get its act together, uh, and you know the capitalists continue to exploit us and our environment, then you know the prospects of uh, massive areas uh, across Scotland, uh, especially in Glasgow, going underwater. It's it's a frightening aspect. So just to get you know your views and what we've seen most recently, you know, uh, you know properly seen, not just in that kind of uh, abstract or statistical view, what we've fully witnessed and you know being here and living here. Absolutely. I mean, two people lost their lives in the northeast of Scotland last weekend during, during Storm Babbitt, which kind of underlines the serious nature that severe weather conditions are are going to have here in Scotland from, from now on in uh, and, and before. I think as well it's important to highlight that whilst we've had heavy rain and flooding last weekend, throughout the summer we had wildfires in Inverness. Uh, meanwhile, the Scottish government are cutting back um, fire appliances across the central belt. Um, so I think that that specific, uh, that specific fact that as the climate emergency gets more severe, as wildfires become more and more likely, as does flooding, the Scottish government are cutting the number of fire engines, which are hugely important in saving lives during severe weather events. 1,500 firefighters have disappeared, well, not disappeared, but have been cut in Scotland over the last decade, right? That's while severe weather conditions get more and more likely. Um, again, indicative of a unplanned, uh, unplanned cuts-based approach to to the climate emergency and to running services. Um, so yeah, we are going to see more and more of of this weather in Scotland across Britain. Um, and it's a consequence, I think, of complacency on behalf of decision makers, right? Because the reality is that these weather events have plagued the global south now for years, where people are um, affected first. And because we're all all right in Britain and uh, America and Europe and the global north, uh, we have delayed and delayed and delayed. Meanwhile, extracting every last drop of resources, whether they be um, whether it be oil or whether it be lithium and precious metals from the global south. We've grown rich um, off the back of underdevelopment. And now um, as a consequence of our kind of colonial model, neo-colonial model of extraction, we are seeing these weather events in the Imperial Court. Uh, it's no longer just an issue for the periphery where we could say this is this is not happening to us. It's fine. It's here, and only now are we beginning to talk about climate change as a as a serious issue. Where across the globe, it's been a serious issue for decades. So, um, you know, these these severe weather events in Scotland should be a wake up call to decision makers in Britain, in Europe, and the US about the severity of the crisis. But they should be a wake up call to decision makers in Scotland who continue to act in a manner which is which downplays the severity of the emergency as you know cutting the number of fire engines demonstrates yeah absolutely spot on Cole. i don't think there's there's much i can add on to that because it, it kind of brings us perfectly on to the next point you know that kind of need for that class conscious and environmental movement uh you know we're seeing the now we're seeing the, the real effects uh, of climate change in our own fr front doorsteps and it's hitting working class communities the hardest, the communities that have seen so much underfunding uh, for the SNP, communities that have been uh, utterly shafted uh, by Tory austerity for decades. And this, this subject of the, the need for an environmental uh, movement that's truly class conscious, I think is uh, really important because we've seen you know, a numerous amount of, of movements uh, throughout the year. Some have lasted longer than others. Some are, are, are relatively new and continue to work. But many of these groups fail to capture the confidence of the working masses. And, you know, I think that's certainly down to, you know, as we can critique it, you know, the, the tactics used, the, the imagery and everything else in between. So just kind of to get your views on, you know, the real need for, 
this class conscious environmental movement and uh, understanding why so many environmental groups in the past have, have really failed to get that broad working class consensus of support? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the, the first thing to say is that sometimes often the class composition of the environmental movement is a problem in itself, right? And that's reflected in the kind of complacency uh, of the movement when they demand the just transition without ever really saying what that just transition is. When they tell workers to retrain, you know, you're telling folk who have been in a trade 20 years to go back to school and you're not telling them um, what, what job they're going to get after, how long they're, that that you know, retrain is going to take. So the, the class composition of the movement uh, is a problem and that that's where the complacency, I think, comes from. Um, there's that famous and unfortunately now cliched Chico Mendes quote that um, environmentalism without class struggle is just gardening. Uh, and it's it's said too often to, to kind of be the rallying cry it once was, but uh, I still like it a lot because I think it it reflects exactly the sentiments that that we need just now. And of course, the the idea that we can have both red and green um, and a class conscious environmental movement is not is not a new one. Um, whether it be the, the Lucas plan and the idea of using your workplace to create socially useful um, products rather than um, rather than weapons or, or um, the green bands in Australia in the 70s when the, the Builders Union in, in Australia were essential in protecting the rights of uh, Indigenous people and protecting Indigenous land. There is there is a kind of a series of events throughout history which have demonstrated the strength of an environment of an environmental movement which is both climate and class conscious. And whatever we can do in Scotland today to to build that, we we should be doing. And I think that involves working as much with the unions as we can but it also involves um acknowledging where there's always going to be differences right we're, we're not saying that uh, there are not going to be distinctive differences between climate and trade unionists um we mentioned unite and gmb earlier i think it's unlikely that that the climate movement will ever have uh will ever have complete agreement with either of those two unions because those two unions base is in um base and membership and and therefore funding comes comes from polluting industries and that's okay you know it's fine to say that um we're not going to agree on everything but where we do agree we're going to work towards a just transition with workers at its center which is um you know which where it can be is publicly owned and where it can be has stringent conditions to enforce good working practices and good good conditions um which is exactly the opposite of what the scottish government are doing are doing just now so it is of the utmost importance that wherever we can we are linking up um, climate activists with trade unionists and I think as well that that part of that uh, relationship requires uh, in the cases of Unite and GMB saying that you know it's for it's for your members uh, to to lead the way on changing your policy with regards to the just transition it's not for the climate movement to go to GMB and say you know your position's appalling on oil and gas and um, and therefore it has to change. That's that's a decision for GMB members who make up um, who make up the union and who should lead the union. Um, so the, the, there are there are um, key things that both that the, the climate movement can do when engaging with when engaging with trade unions to attempt to build you know class conscious uh, environmental movement. But the most important thing is 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 solidarity, right? And and appearing on appearing on picket lines and vice versa, um, having uh, workers on on climate demonstrations and things like that. One of the most powerful moments uh, for me during COP twenty six was when that kind of sea of um sea of cleansing workers led the uh, major march on the Friday of COP. That's a pretty um powerful symbol that you know the city stands united against the charade going on, um. On the Clyde, that uh, workers and climate activists, you know, stand as one behind a climate justice banner, which says um, we need a just transition in this country and internationally, but one which works for the working class. Yeah, spot on, Comrade. I think you're, you're you're quite right there, and you know, certainly in regards to the the movements that we have seen, also mentioned, like say, you're you're just off oil and uh, insulate Britain. You know, uh, I think some some folk on the the quote left, you know, do shy away from providing criticism to 
environmental movements which you know hampers hampers the movement itself as well as the the broad environmental strategy we're all uh, trying to reach towards you know i think the way we're or the the way you know many people view the likes of just off oil or, or, or those who instead of taking perhaps direct action uh, to the doors uh, of uh, those responsible for uh, legislations that pass through things like Rosebank or you know people from these these oil tycoons themselves, uh, you know it's very disrupt it's disruptive action that they're taking and, and of course disruptive disruptive action you know does have its time. Uh, does have a place. I, I don't think there's there's any denying of such a tactic, but more so in, in how it's used as well. You know, we've seen smaller uh, kind of perhaps splinter groups take similar actions near Clyde Bank with, you know, blocking, you know, refineries, transports and everything else in between to, to really halt the movement uh, of fossil fuels. And, you know, we've seen quite a, a parallel in how that's been perceived by the general public. I think, for just up all, they've they've ran into a lot of uh, as a most recent, you know, violence uh, and with, with so much frustration, you know, really the real aggression. I guess workers will will feel living in a city like London, trying to commute to the work, and then all of a sudden getting stopped, and no doubt still still getting grief off their gaffers for for being late, regardless of you know the the, the situations behind it. But certainly the the theoretical approaches and the, the theoretical. Uh, benefits and understanding that uh, groups like Just Stop Oil have is uh, and it's scientific. You know, many people from the scientific community, uh, other environmental experts, academics who who really understand the subject. It's a case of how do we educate the masses on this, and that for me certainly has to be done with everything that we do. And given that reason and linking it with any any kind of subject, they probably take it to to Glasgow and uh, the Wineford. So. Obviously, the the Wainford, the Wheatley are hoping to to demolish six hundred tower blocks and replace them with three hundred. Uh, it probably double the price, uh, robbing this community of the option of retrofitting, which is the more environmentally friendly option, given the the CO two uh, emissions that would be, be created for the crushing of all this that, this concrete and uh, all the other movements that will be that will be prevalent during the transformation of the Wineford into a construction site, uh, not to mention the noise pollution as well. But linking that in with uh, not just the housing issue that we're seeing now has been fantastic. It's led to uh, a campaign that's been uh, deeply entrenched and you know elevated by people from trade unions, from environmental groups, folk in a local community who are now understanding you know, the, the deeper impact and the, the actual link uh, you know, between so many different issues, the housing issue, uh, housing issues in Scotland and the environmental issues and how these tie in together uh, and I think for the environmental movement as a whole it's how we link them is going to be absolutely important it's all well and good shouting these are the stats these are this x y and z but if we can't link it into these local communities if we can't link it in you know a, a, a more local kind of scale then you know a lot of workers who are are, are constantly fed you know the the trope uh, of global warming isn't really impacting us uh, here in in, uh, in the north, and as you've quite rightly said, you know we're seeing it now. It's it's not just a case of the global south uh, bearing the brunt of it. Now it's coming to us, and you know folk do need that that wake up call and how it is delivered uh, to working people, not just within the trade union movement, but just in in local communities is going to be you know a defining factor uh, in terms of meaningful change, meaningful climate targets that are locally. Uh, crafted and you know specific, measurable, attainable uh, actual goals that, that that can be reached. So you know, I I think that's where we see kind of the environmental movement attaining that class conscious level. Uh, you know, uh, going going to that. I think so many folk think that when you say you're, we need a a movement that's uh, class conscious. It's not a case of just starting up something completely fresh and new. You know, it's it's working with what we've got, working with uh, you know, we're trade unions, we're, we're local groups, and everything else in between to to rally behind each other. And from the collaboration that we've seen post COP twenty six with the trade union movement, uh, with environmental groups, local community campaigns, and everything else in between, uh, we are starting to see that. It's how we we deliver this scientific message and you know the real facts and dangers to to the workers of, of, of Scotland and Britain 
uh, and how we how we actually meet meaningful goals. It's going to be the be all and end all. So I guess just to to finish off in the last kind of like question, then we've kind of touched on it throughout the the episode, but just to see if we can talk on Scotland's just transition, uh, and I've got that in quotations uh, on my phone because as we said, you know it's very obtuse these these targets and what a just transition means. Uh, even within the environmental movement, means uh, very different things to very different people uh, from different environmental groups. So it was just to get your views on the just transition and, and what that can mean for Scotland. Yeah, I mean, you're right to have Scotland just transition in, in quotation marks. Uh, I, I'm It's my pet project following this quite closely. Um, and increasingly, I'm just, you know, calling it Scotland's transition because... Scottish government are doing nothing to make it just. There's a there's a pattern uh, to the Scottish government's approach to the environmental transition, um, and it very clearly involves outsourcing, it involves privatisation, and it involves taking things as far from workers' control as is possible. Um, essentially, what what it amounts to is asset stripping. Uh, Scotland of of all it has put in Scotland on the market to a point where Richard Lockhead, Scottish Government Minister for um, Tourism, Small and Medium Enterprises and uh, Business Minister effectively tweeted that um, Scotland is open for business because of its stable net zero policy. Um, Truer words have never been said by a Scottish Government Minister because uh, as I say, Scotland is on the market because the Scottish Government view the just transition as an opportunity to empower private capital and to strip uh, the Scottish people of all that they have, bearing in mind this is a government who are supposed to favour independence and sovereignty, but on questions of ownership are miles off sovereignty, let alone independence. Some some tangible examples, I guess the, the highest profile one was the Scotland auction uh, at the beginning of last year, when um, the crown, the Scottish government through the crown estates auction round leased Scotland's offshore wind capacity to the fossil fuel industry, among the biggest winners at that auction were Shell, BP, um, and companies companies like that. So you know the the tycoons of the fossil fuel industry are now tasked with developing Scotland's renewable energy. Meanwhile, the Scottish government parrot on about how much Scotland's renewable potential is key to the just transition, that Scotland's renewable potential has been entrusted to the fossil fuel industry. Earlier this year, the Scottish government signed a PFI deal um, with Nature Scott for £2 billion for nature restoration, which effectively privatises Scotland's trees. It leverages private capital to um, run the carbon market effectively in Scotland. So what you're going to have is the biggest polluters paying um, to uh, offset their emissions in Scotland. And all that does is entrench Scotland's a pattern of land ownership which is heavily concentrated a handful of people own vast tracts of Scotland already and all this PFI deal does is empower those owners because it's those owners whose land can be used to plant trees for carbon credit it's greening capitalism it's uh, doing everything they can to continue max to facilitate international capital continuing maximum extraction while delaying the just transition at home or the transition at home. So there's that PFI deal and there's the Scotland scandal. Uh, and then you have uh, Project Neptune, which was a, a Scottish government uh, report, which was uh, paid for by Ernst & Young private consultancy, which looked at unbundling CalMAC ferries. Now, as the RNT have correctly pointed out, unbundling is a byword for privatisation. Even the design for Scotland's National Care Service, which you know is integral to the Just Transition as much as anything else, because as we know, the Just Transition is all-encompassing. That's what climate justice means. Even the National Care Service uh, was entrusted to uh, Price Waterhouse Coopers, another of the big four consultancy firms. So, as I say, the pattern is outsource it, privatise it. Meanwhile, the Scottish government failed to impose any uh, any obligations on the Scotland contracts that went to BP and Shell. So they could have mandated the living wage, trade union recognition, all of these things, and yet there was no move to do so. So, you know, there's a continued failing for any sort of just transition. Um, 
and it's being correctly protested by by unions. Another example is the free ports. Scotland now has two green free ports. Now, what on earth is green about a free port, which effectively functions as subnational tax havens, is beyond me. But um, we now have one at the Cromarty Firth and another uh, up in Inverness, I think. Um, so uh, it's it's a shambles, really. There's also two investment zones, which are the younger, ugly sibling of free ports, which effectively function as smaller free ports, which went to um, those local authorities which bid for free ports and didn't get them. So we really have four zones across the country which... Uh, are unregulated playgrounds for private capital. Uh, so if you think about a map of Scotland, you've got all the sea entrusted to BP and Shell for the development of offshore wind. You've got vast tracts of land across the north entrusted to green lairds. You've got these investment zones in different parts of the country. You've got two free ports in different parts of the country. And very quick, and, and, then, and then in the south of Scotland is where there's, there's this... Um, forest which uh, has been which is part of the PFI deal so there's actually you know vast tracts of, of Scotland is in the hands in one way or another of private capital as a result of Scottish government action um, meanwhile they have the cheek to pat it on about putting Scotland's future in Scotland's hands uh, it, it really is a shambles you know we, we know what a just transition needs to look like it needs to it needs to be it needs to be worker led it needs to be trade union led and um, if you look at a report produced by friends of the earth scotland with the stuc and other unions called our power a thousand offshore uh, workers were interviewed about their demands for a just transition and among their demands for a just transition are things that we absolutely need the nationalization of energy uh, and into derisory pay offshore, equal pay for um, migrant workers and Scots workers, all of these things demands rooted in justice and class politics, but the Scottish government, of course, are not interested. Ros Foyer, the General Secretary of the STUC, tells a good story about um, going to Wick up north and um, the community there had had uh, the Scottish government minister for a just transition uh, up and um, they'd ask him, you know, what's what's going on with this? Because it needs to happen quickly and it needs to happen now. And he kind of uh, parroted lots of uh, soundbite lines um, and effectively ended up saying to them that we don't really know. So why don't you write us? Why, why don't you write what you want for a just transition? And that's exactly what, you know, people in WIC did. They produced their own plan for a just transition, sent it to the Scottish government and, of course, received no reply. So it, it really is a transition that is increasingly less just. The unjust transition is <laughs> certainly the way to phrase it. And, you know, like you're saying, in, in regards to Scotland open for business, uh, yeah, you're bang on. It's been open to business for the the, cap, the capitalist class to, to seize up uh, the potential, again, for, for any, uh, any, for, uh, any form of, you know, environmental strategy to be implemented instead, you know, securing that ground for... Uh, future fossil fuel development and sometimes it's just even to hold on to the land to stop uh, you know restrictions being being laid in place and uh, it's the continued facade from what we've seen from from COP26 these these lies these claims of you know the so-called just transition uh, officers in the, the Scottish government who have just been put there as a placeholder uh, they've just been given a script read off it and they ask any questions uh, come back home uh, you know, we're not seeing any any real change being made, and certainly with you know looking at the the fossil fuels and, and you know these 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 companies buying uh, off, offshore uh, areas, you know mainland areas are, are especially more frightening. You know that it's approaching that uh, that way towards further restrictions on the right to roam, which I think is going to be frightening as well. You know, if we see that this continued uh, leveraging and prioritisation of uh, private capital over, you know, the, the rights uh, of the Scottish workers and the further hypocrisy in the Scottish government and, and, and kind of Britain as a whole and these claims of, you know, this is what we're doing, this is how we're reducing uh, the world's carbon emissions, you know, we're getting all these uh, wind farms up. It's it's excellent. Uh, we're importing uh, the parts from X, Y and Z. We're having to get skilled uh, labourers in from A, B and C uh, and it's just an utter farce. It's, it's not really 
it's not doing anything. It's a, it's a charade, as we, we've said, from, from COP26 to the actions that we're seeing now. It's, it's nothing influential, nothing meaningful. Uh, and it just serves to the actions of the Scottish government and, and how they approach this serves to continue that dance uh, around and, and, you know, cloud people's heads and, and workers' heads who aren't, you know, necessarily class conscious and having them being lulled into this false sense of security. Well, the Scottish government is doing something, so I guess that is good, but we know it's it's not nearly uh, good enough. But yeah, just to, to finish off then, Cole, just uh, any final talking points from yourself and whereabouts can we find you in social media? Thanks for having me on. Um, it's been a been a very good discussion. The hours flown by. Um, so I'm on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Mikhail Call. My, my name in reverse. So uh, you you'll find me on there. It's never particularly interesting what I put out, but um, worth a follow anyway. No, it's been great, mate. Thanks again for your time. You know, I know, I know you're busy as well. And I, I meant to say earlier on the the Mendes quote. Uh, I know it's a cliche of yours. If I if I had a pound for every time I've heard you use it, I'd be able to start my own oil company. <laughs> that's that's it. That's it. That. But no, again, thanks so much, Cole, for coming on, and all the best. Cheers, mate. Thank you, comrades, for tuning in to another episode of Spectre. Be sure to share us with your friends, comrades, and co-workers, and of course, leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening in on. Comrades, it is vital as communists that we have to channel the raw emotions and social instability of the workers and convince them to place environmentalism at the centre of our struggles always, linking it with numerous campaigns across all regions and all local communities to drive forward and make meaningful change at local level, building up cadres capable of mass influence across the trade union movement and local government. It's vital, although this world continues to be destroyed, that we must increase our agitation amongst the working class and show them who the people are that are causing this damage. We can't let the minds of our generation and the workers be hypnotised into so-called doomerism. It is our duty to ensure that the real message of our environmental strategy is relayed to the masses and that the real weapon of environmental struggle is forged amongst the masses. We must drive the workers away from staring into the abyss and show them that they have the tools that can guide them out of instability and destruction. We must all work together to build an environmental and green movement soaked in the deepest shade of red. The message is simple. It is socialism or extinction. Feed my appetite for the structure. You got no-